Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Miss the show, no worries on point and on the podcast. Coming up, the Supreme Court of Canada has ordered a new trial for a Hamilton man who was acquitted in the murder of an Indigenous man. So we're going to talk about the high-profile case, which is being watched very carefully by Indigenous leaders across this country and the implications a new case could cause. Grassy Narrows been a stain on this country for decades, and yet we get so many promises at all levels of government that it'll be cleaned up, and yet nothing happens. So we're going to talk to someone who has written about this as a newcomer to this country and about the shock that something like this even exists in a G7 nation, but he's taken on this fight, which he says and will explain is very close to his heart. And the Bank of Canada says, stay calm and carry on about inflation, and yet the banks are saying, hold on a second, we are talking two different languages. We'll talk about the warnings the banks in Canada are issuing about inflation. Let's get talking. This is On Point with Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. We are going to take a slow and steady approach uh, to uh, the removal of any public health measures over time based on the data at hand. So we still have to monitor for the effects of the Thanksgiving weekend uh, and whether there's been any spread of the infection uh, in any of the communities across Ontario. Tens of thousands can go to a hockey game, but hey, small businesses, you've got to wait at least another two weeks because Thanksgiving may have been a super spreader. Alex Pearson with you on this Thursday, October 14th. Hope you're all doing very well. Thank you for uh, tuning in. So um, Premier Ford is expected to come out tomorrow and say something. Not, of course, the something everyone wants to hear, but some kind of announcement uh, that will have no impact on small businesses. Because, of course, today we learn late this afternoon that small businesses and the restrictions on them will be in place for up to two weeks, right? Because apparently, it's only safe for massive big-ticket venues to open. You see, the real concern our experts are now watching for is the data from Thanksgiving weekend to see, I guess, if Aunt Matilda spread COVID passing the potatoes at the uh, dinner table. Uh, The insanity of the decision-making has now reached peak lunacy, right? And Dr. Kieran was rightfully pressed on why we are waiting today. You know, what is the threshold for small businesses to open? How big are the gatherings okay at these big ticket events, but why can't you go inside a restaurant to eat dinner? And and Dr. Moore mumbled out some kind of explanation, but of course it clarified nothing. Once we implement a public health measure, we're always looking at the exit strategy for a public health measure. Uh, and so when we imposed restrictions to any facility, we um, had it, always thoughts of opening uh, and a progressive uh, reopening uh, over time. So it wasn't just last week that this suddenly came in. The minute you impose a public health measure, you should be thinking of what would be the indicators for it to be removed. So we have been having these conversations with government for months. Mm-hmm. So Dr. Moore is saying we need to be very slow and cautious. Okay, well, 
wouldn't it have been smarter than to put health measures in place, maybe to open the small businesses first, you know, the venues that can actually control crowds where there is nothing but social distancing and where they can actually track people coming in and out? I mean, what are these people smoking? Whatever it is, it's gone bad. I fail to see how allowing tens of thousands of people to gather cheek to jowl before Thanksgiving is safer or smarter. I mean, it's kind of like you take a shower and then you go mud wrestle, right? It doesn't make sense, which is, of course, a running theme of this pandemic. And given all these big venues were open all weekend, I'd love to know how these geniuses are going to determine if cases came from a Thanksgiving gathering or from someone who went to one of these big venues. I mean, they won't which is why these decisions are just so outrageously nonsensical. Because the data overwhelmingly tells us it is now safe to open businesses. The data has been telling us for weeks that we should be able to ease restrictions. But we also know that data never ends up deciding the factor when it comes to COVID policy. Or we would have opened the small businesses first and then allowed for thousands to go out and party. But... Lobbyists, I guess, they do really decide the day, and it's clear that big businesses have hired each and every single one of them. You know, Premier Ford, and I like Premier Ford a lot, I think he's a nice guy, but he sold himself as a champion for the little guy. And sadly, he's proven to be anything but during this pandemic, and I do not envy his position. I mean, he is damned if he does, he is damned if he doesn't, and I also don't pretend to know, you know, the pressure he's been under, but he is the premier who said he'd fight for the little guy. He is the premier who stated on day one that under his leadership, Ontario is open for business. And then he turns around and, and shuts it down with the heaviest and longest lockdown measures in the world. The only thing open for business under Ford have been big box stores, not the stores run by the little guy. And it could cost him in the next election. I mean, he won't lose in 2022, but that's only because the other choices are absolutely horrid. But he's infuriated his base. He has infuriated the business community who believed he understood business and would have their backs. And the decisions being made suggest he doesn't. I mean, for months, the talking point, we talk about it all the time. Vaccinations are our way out of this thing. Well, okay, Ontario is the most vaccinated province. 77% of us now have a full vaccination. And yet, the goalposts just keep moving. They just keep moving to protect, I guess, those who refuse to get the shot. And I'm sorry, but that protection should be reserved for the unvaccinated kids or those who can't get the shot because of actual legitimate medical issues. So we know that this is a pandemic of the unvaccinated. And they're very sad, but it is their choice. But the rest of us, and that includes millions of businesses who are vaccinated, should actually be able to get back to living life. But, of course, all we get is confusing messaging from those in charge. And I blame the confusion for creating a lot of the mistrust we now see with vaccines and why we start to see so much pushback on the rules. And it just keeps happening. Because at the same time, Ontario is starting to ease the shackles. Uh, you know, we've got the United States reopening its borders to us. Uh, we've got a bunch of federal ministers running around warning us not to travel. It's just too dangerous, said Christian Freeland on Wednesday from Washington. She said it with a much higher voice, but it was dangerous. 
not too dangerous for her to go to Washington, just, just dangerous for any of us to want to go to Washington. And in just a few days, Justin Trudeau is going to travel to Europe to a G20 meeting, and then he'll take his plane and go to the climate summit in Glasgow, right? If travel is so dangerous, why are those in charge traveling? Patty Hadju, the health minister, just stated to Mercedes Stevenson last week that traveling could bring the virus into places where cases don't exist. Don't travel, she said. Well, based on Patty's logic, Freeland and Trudeau should be leading by example and holding their meetings by Zoom. But hey, we all know the rules are for we, not thee, when it comes to the decision makers. And tomorrow, Ford is expected to make a couple of announcements, but it'll be about vaccines. And one of those, we're supposed to hear that proof of vaccines in Ontario will eventually be voluntary for business. Now, I don't know why he would announce something like that while we're still trying to get the hesitant vaccinated. I mean, that seems pretty stupid because then they'll just wait and not get vaccinated. But we also know that vaccine mandates are nothing more than political kabuki theater. They just are. Trudeau's tough new vaccine mandate for the federal public service, I mean, is so holy it makes a piece of Swiss cheese look whole. Because 70% of the public service is exempt from any kind of mandate. And yet for 36 days, Trudeau jumped up and down, warning that people would be fired if they don't get the shot. It was a great talking point, but it wasn't accurate because he doesn't have the power to do it. Blacklock's reporter revealing that, according to Canadian health rules put in place back in 1996, quote, immunization is not mandatory in Canada and it can't be made mandatory because of our constitution, end quote. So managers across the public sector are now telling their employees that workers cannot be fired for getting or not getting a vaccine, and they must be offered an alternative, like a test. So in other words, Trudeau now is going to implement the very vaccine plan that Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole was ridiculed for during the entire election. Kabuki theater is the virus that is spreading in this country when it comes to political decision-making. This is um, a story to keep an eye on. It's a high-profile murder case out of Hamilton that you've been hearing about in the news. And it's back in the news after the country's highest court ruled that the man acquitted in the shooting death of John Stiers will face a new trial. Stiers uh, was a 29-year-old from Six Nations who was shot twice and killed at 3 a.m. on February 4th back in 2016 in the driveway of Peter Cahill's home. And at that time, Cahill would tell police that he loaded his shotgun, went out to confront Stiers, who was breaking into his truck, but instead then fired off two shots in a claim of self-defense. He was found not guilty back in 2018 after a 12-day trial, but his case was appealed by the Crown, and then the Ontario Court of Appeal ruled unanimously that the trial judge failed to give proper instructions to the jury. And what they did, or failed to do, is to tell the jury to consider Cahill's conduct before he pulled the trigger. The case then was pushed to the country's top court by Cahill's lawyers, who argued what he did before the shooting wouldn't have changed the fact that he fired in self-defense. Well, the court dismissed the appeal, 
And the country's top court has now ordered a new trial on a case that is being watched very, very clo closely by Indigenous leaders right across Canada. Joe Newberger joining me here. He is our Global News Radio legal expert. Hello, Joe. Hello. How are you? Well, I'm good. I mean, I saw this headline right away this morning. I mean, this is one of those very high-profile cases, but it's also highly charged. Um, and so I know that many in the Indigenous community were angered by the verdict uh, and the outcome, but uh, now the top court has decided it's got to go back into court. Correct. And, and you started this off in a very uh, important way, because if you consider the court's decision... But think about the facts leading up to the shooting, which is why the court made their decision. So this was a situation where the uh, accused had noticed that the headlights on his car or his truck was on. He grabbed mm -hmm. his shotgun from his bedroom closet, loaded it with two shells, and quietly approached the truck using a back door, barefoot, wearing a T-shirt, and then uh, when he saw the passenger in his seat, said, hands up. And when the person turned, that's when he fired two shots, thinking that he might have a weapon. It mm -hmm. is, it is a, an eight-to-one decision where the Supreme Court has said the actions of the accused leading up to the shooting are relevant to the reasonableness of his actions and perception at the time and relevant, therefore, to his defense, which is self-defense. Right. And, and I think that's the correct decision. Yeah, and, and interestingly, um, no gun was found on Stiers. Cahill yeah. said that he had acted on his military training, which was to neutralize the threat, but he only called 911 after the man was dead. And so generally speaking, when you think someone's breaking into your house, you call 911 at that point, but he chose not to. Um, and so the judge in this case, and it's not a small thing, did tell the jury that self-defense can be justified by the reasonable belief that a person is being threatened, whether or not that threat actually exists. But the judge apparently didn't think the jury should consider the state of mind or the events that would justify it or not. And, and that's not a small thing to leave out. No, you're right. So here there's a distinction between the trial judge's uh, understanding of self-defense and what is relevant. And, and in essence, what he instructed the jury was the moments at the time or seconds or fractions of seconds at the time of the vehicle, what was the situation? What was his belief to give mm -hmm. reasonableness to his response? And the court uh, of appeal and then the Supreme Court of Canada said no there has to be a more fulsome instruction to the jury in order to have um, an assessment of reasonableness of his prior conduct because that has an impact on whether mm -hmm. his actions overall resulted in a situation where he had no choice but to use lethal force um, right and in other in other words so yeah so yeah, in other ahead. words Self-defense, you know, if Stiers, you know, uh, had come running at him or presented a gun, okay, there's your self-defense. But at no time did this man um, run at, at Mr. Cahill, nor did he ever present a gun. In fact, he was standing sideways when he was shot. And so I, it, it would sound to me from the evidence that he didn't even know what was coming. Um, and, and if the jury had been presented with the you know, the state of mind or the events leading up to it, they may have looked at that and come to a different decision in the, um, in the, in the end. You're exactly right. In fact, Moldaver agrees with you. Uh, Justice mm -hmm. Moldaver had said, frankly, that, you know, if, um, 
if they were given the right instruction, they would have been evaluating the reasonableness of his prior conduct, that the threshold of wrongfulness would not have been met. And in fact, his forced use could have been excessive and would have resulted in a different verdict. So you're absolutely right. This is not a situation where the guy, when when the accused is approaching the vehicle, the guy gets out and confronts him. And at that right. point, you know, you may be threatened and feel that you're in imminent danger. There is no reason whatsoever to approach the vehicle in a stealth manner with a loaded shotgun to approach him. You could have just dialed 911. And I think right. what the court is driving at, in order to use self-defense, we can't simply simplify it to the fraction of seconds at the moment there's a confrontation. It has to be whether there is an opportunity you know, to, to address it in a different way. Self-defense doesn't require you to retreat from an immediate situation. But if you have time to address it in an alternative way where there is no confrontation, well, then that's the issue. Because he could have very well, just like you said, like I would when if they're stealing my car at the moment, I'd dial 911. I'm not running out with a blade and trying to confront them. <laughs> we, dial, we dial 911. No, I'm, I'm under the bed. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, you know, it wouldn't. I'll probably behind, my, you know, I, I won't say this. I'd be behind my wife. I'm just kidding. But, you know, <laughs> yeah. we're not going to do that. You know, and, and, yeah. and this is a, a terrible situation where we've seen it in two incidents where there are indigenous individuals killed for theft of a vehicle. We also had that case in Oshawa, you know, where uh, those that police, you know, off duty police officer is confronting the two cops. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah I got so the name of it is um, yeah. just. Yeah, I forgot it right now. But, you know, you know, we were we're taking the law into our own hands. And this is what distinguishes us from the United States. We have a robust self-defense argument in Canada, which is very good. But we don't need to put ourselves in situations where we have to defend ourselves when there's an alternative. I think I think we have a bit of an ideological decision here where they're saying this is too far for self-defense. Yeah, and the cost, uh, case you were referring to is the Defonte Miller case, which yeah, was, uh, which was uh, where he lost an eye after a very thorough beating by an off-duty cop. Um, right. But you know, this is an interesting case because it, it took place that this murder case in Hamilton took place when there was still a lot of anger spilling over from um, almost a similar case of, of Colton Bushy. This was an Indigenous man who was shot and killed right. by Gerald Stanley, who argued he was defending himself from the man who had come onto his Saskatchewan farm, and in that case he was acquitted right. but the argument was well there were no visible indigenous members on the jury um and and back then the justice minister jody wilson raybould um i felt stepped over the line kind of inserting herself into the case commenting on that but in this case the jurors were actually screened for racial bias you know asked right. you know if a white man killing an indigenous person would skew their decision making Right. Um, and so here we go with a case that's going to be very high profile. Um, it's going to go back into the courts. And uh, would yeah. you do this judge alone? I mean, if you were giving advice, I mean, I almost think you would have to do this judge alone because it's so high profile. All the evidence is out there and it would be tough, I think, to get kind of a, a not a, a, like a fair, fair trial the second time around on you either know, side. I would say that first of all, I just want to say you're absolutely right, because our then minister with that other case overstepped her yeah. bounds and criticized the jury. The prime minister did the same thing, and then they screwed up a jury selection process. They, they, yeah. they, you know, they ruined preemptory challenges, so I'll leave that aside. But yeah. I yeah. agree. I think it's going to be very difficult, given the high-profile nature of this. But if I was the accused and the lawyer, I'd go jury again. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. you know, because a judge may have to very carefully weigh the legal consequences of the action. Like he's got it. He's got eight judges of the Supreme Court saying, you right. know, his prior conduct could very well have impacted the verdict and there was not a proper instruction. So I think, you know, mm-hmm. a judge may be under a lot of pressure to deal with that uh, in the form of some sort of conviction. So I'd probably lean on, on, on the side of going with a jury and, and making the same argument. And, and who knows, 12 jurors might be of the same opinion as the, uh, as the first time. Yeah. Nonetheless, it's a fascinating case and it is one to watch. And, uh, and it was a pretty interesting ruling today. So I appreciate you um, giving some insight and kind of taking us through it. Always a pleasure, Alex. Thank you. Always. Thank you, Joe. Mr. Joe Newberger joining us here today. And uh, yeah, Joe, Justice Minister at the time, Jody Wilson-Raybould, you may recall this it, when it was in the Colton Bushy case. And it was a very high profile case. It was very, very emotional and highly charged. She commented publicly that she felt the jury was a problem. And then Trudeau, who knows nothing about the courts, like literally just stop talking, decides to express his grief and sorrow and, and politicize the whole issue. And to Joe's point, you couldn't appeal it because politicians got in the way of it. So that matter was ended there. So nonetheless, we'll keep an eye on this one and um, and see what happens with the next trial date. People in Rossi Narrows are suffering from mercury poisoning. You committed to addressing this Thank you for being here. Thank you very much for your donation tonight. I really appreciate it. That was Justin Trudeau not so long ago mocking a grassy narrow protester who had bought a ticket to his pricey Toronto fundraiser back in 29 so she could get answers about the mercury poisoning the water that she and other families have been forced to drink for decades. And of course, you'll recall Trudeau used the moment to mock her as she was dragged out of the venue. And uh, grassy narrow is not a new story, but that this poisoned water crisis has been ignored and left to fester decade after decade with no one in charge held to account is pretty confounding, especially in this country. Promises have been made by both the province and the federal government, including the current one, but then nothing happens. The mercury was supposed to be remediated out of the water from both the English and Wabagoon rivers, but as my next guest learned, when you actually try to find a dollar to see what has been done to actually fix it, it leads to nowhere. His name, Darshan Maharaja, he is a political blogger, but he wrote an article on how First Nations issues are perceived by newcomers to Canada. He joins us now. Good to have you, Darshan. Thank you for having me. You do not claim to be an expert. You don't claim to be a politician or a specialist in indigenous or government issues, but you wrote about Grassy Narrow in this article on how First Nations issues are perceived by newcomers to Canada because... You're a new. You're a, a Canadian who comes from a different country, and and found it, I guess, surprising that this goes on in Canada. Yeah, the first time I heard about it, uh, I mean, uh, I was taken aback. Uh, said this can't be happening in a first world country. But then again, you know, like uh, every newcomer, I was busy settling down. So it wasn't until the last few months that I started paying attention and digging into it, and I discovered that there was this $85 million plan that had been announced by Kathleen Wynne when she was premier back in 2017. So I thought, Mm -hmm. hey, why don't I try and find out how far the implementation has gone? That was 15 weeks ago, come Sunday. 
And uh, so far, they haven't offered any information. And across the political spectrum, none of the politicians sitting in Queen's Park has responded. Yeah, and, and you don't get paid to do this, not like someone like me uh, who is used to making these calls, but you reached out and I looked through this list of long names, everyone from the Premier to Andrea Horvath, uh, John Fraser, uh, Salma Makwa, who is First Nations, the Ministry of Environment, Mike Schreiner, you wrote and you wrote and you wrote for months, even the, um, you know, environment uh, departments, and then you get left with this wall of silence. But when it comes to Grassy Narrows, you know, you don't get answers at any point. So how many months do you think you've spent trying to get basic answers on this? Well, I started on July the 4th. I remember the date because we remember July the 4th as the U.S. Independence Day. And uh, so far, there hasn't been any answer. The only tidbit of information that I got was that the panel report for 2020-21 was submitted by the panel on 1st of June to the minister. It has not yet been tabled in the legislature. And funnily, the law that was passed back in 2017 to put this in place, it puts a deadline on the panel to submit the report, but not a deadline on the minister to present it to the legislature. So there so you go. Uh, so a lot of would go forever. Well, well, of course, yes, um, and, and it's not generally until the media picks on up on it that you will get a response. But again, on this issue, Darshan, I think you're right. Um, I don't matter. I don't think it matters who you are when it comes to. Um, you know, delivering on promises to Indigenous communities for whatever reason we get the announcement, but we don't get the follow-through, and, and, and these people are still drinking, bathing, and having to live with mercury-tainted or poisoned water that was already supposed to be under remediation. Um, and, and just so our listeners understand, you come from India. Your dad was a civil engineer for the Indian government, so he had an expertise in dams and getting water to poor communities. And so this is this is an expertise that he has had that makes you keenly aware of, of what's going on at Grassy Narrows or or what could be a solution for it. Yeah, you know, as I was growing up, I learned from him how, uh, you know, because dams are usually located in remote areas where in a third world country back then means of communication were uh, uh, sketchy at best. So every release of water from the dam had to be communicated using those suboptimal means so that people downstream know that water is coming. There used to be a schedule, but at times they had to break that schedule because the inflow was more. And uh, in, in the tropics, many rivers are dry for much of the year, so there's still underground water. A lot of people grow vegetables in the river bed to sell. So even the quantity has to be measured so that it doesn't go all the way to the bank of the river. There's a lot of, uh, you know, nitty-gritty that goes into managing water supplies right at the source. And here these people are, I tried looking up uh, grassy narrows on uh, the map, and they are surrounded by water. And it's like water, water everywhere, not a drop to drink situation. And especially in a first world country for 50 years, this is a matter of international shame for Canada, in my view. Yeah, unfortunately, it is. And I think, you know, you ask questions a lot of uh, a lot of us ask is how is it that in 2021 we have dozens of long term and short term water boil issues still on reservations across this country? This was a promise by the Trudeau government to fix in the first term in 2015. It's still not done. I don't get the sense that there's any urgency to get this done until 
um, Darshan, we get a situation where bodies are found on a residential school. Then, it, of course, all the politicians once again start promising action. And then the story mm-hmm. then once again goes away. And so obviously this is a very important kind of issue for you. You come at it from an outsider's perspective um, with kind of a different way of looking at things. Um, and you also have experience just through your dad's experience in another country of, of the fact that clean water can be had. And so where do you hope to take this? I mean, why has this almost become such a passion project for you? Well, I have mentioned in my article, first of all, the fact that I didn't know much about it hurt my ego. So I decided to find out about it. And then when they were stonewalling, it hurt my ego even more. So I said, hey, I've got to get this done. And then uh, there is this thing in Hindu culture where we pay homage to our uh, deceased parents and ancestors. That date for me this year was on 20th of September. So I said, let me publish this article then. But that was the election day. So it would have been drowned out. So then I waited, decided on a different timeline. But it's basically because my father and my father-in-law both built dams over their lives and maintained them. I've decided that this is going to be my homage to them. Both are no more. And uh, Mm. once I pass from this world, I want to face them confidently saying I did something about people's water problems. Yeah, well, it's a big motivation, but it is everyday people like yourself um, who tend to to bring change. Um, and so you've got the forum and you've got the airways here. What What is your message um, while we can get one through to Premier Ford, to Prime Minister Trudeau, um, to all the stakeholders uh, in the MPs and MPPs across this, uh, this province? Premier Ford, in the only reply that he gave to me, took cover behind the argument that many of the First Nations issues are multi-jurisdictional. Now, he has had more than three years to sort out any multi-jurisdictional issues on this matter. And if he hasn't, then he has to start now and get it done. Because First Nations reserves are federal responsibility, everything outside that is provincial, etc. They have to get cracking and talk to the federal government, whatever issues are there. But more than that, they have to be open in their communication as to where the project stands. Because this kind of uh, blackout of information is not good in a democracy. They have to uh, publicize periodically as to where the project is, how far it has gone, the implementation, and announce a timeline. Now, before Mm -hmm. the plan was made, uh, there was uh, a technical plans submitted. I think uh, the funding of $85 million is based on that. That plan envisaged implementation to begin in 2018 and was going to last 10 years. But the panel report for 2020, 2019-20, says that, uh, I mean, it hints that uh, implementation may not start for another five years. In the meantime, they are blowing millions. Like by 2020, they had spent 11 million plus. And if it goes to 2025, half the funding will be gone, not a shovel in the ground. So they have to get serious and even the opposition. I mean, this two years, the report is being submitted to uh, the parliament by the minister. And it shows that work has not started, but the opposition parties have not picked up on that. They have to start hammering on this. Yeah, well, Darshan, as you well know, talk is cheap. And so we'll continue following uh, your journey and see if you can follow the dollar and get any more uh, information. And we'll uh, keep in touch. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate this.
Thank you for having me and voicing this important issue for Ontarians. That is Darshan Maharaja, and he uh, is not a political person, not associated with any political parties. He is not a, a reporter. He is someone who comes from the outside into this country. And, uh, you know, you you hear, you know, I don't know if it's shame or embarrassment, but he certainly sees the stain that has been ignored for so many decades in this country. You'll forgive me if I don't think about monetary policy. Uh, you'll understand that I think about families. <laughs> that statement right there should have had, it should have been the final nail in Trudeau's political coffin. Because rising inflation hurts the families he says he cares about. But today, the president of the Royal Bank uh, took exception to the Bank of Canada's cavalier approach to inflation. And a guy named Dave McKay says there is a big disagreement with Tim Macklem's prediction in that he says he sees the world quite differently. So you will recall Macklem said last week that um, this should be temporary, you know, blaming things like the supply chain, labor issues. But the uh, Royal Bank CEO says not only is persistent inflation building, it is going to be here for a while. And one of the reasons, because we're sitting on our cash. We are not spending. We are you know, spending on things like debt and bills. And I guess people are feeling pretty uncertain, but this increased inflation in these um, unpredictable times could last another decade. So I turn to my expert on all things uh, economic. We'll turn to Ian Lee, of course, associate professor at the Sprout School of Business over at Carleton University. Good to have you, Ian. Uh, my pleasure, Alex. My pleasure. So I, I, I don't know if I verbalized it to you on the show, or I certainly have asked myself about it, but I've, always, I've wondered aloud before, you know, if the Bank of Canada has turned political. It is not supposed to be political, but Tiff, Tiff Macklem has gotten a couple of things wrong in the last, you know, few months. So has the Bank of Canada, you know, is it wrong to say they've become a bit political here? You've asked, I think, a very important question. And I've lived in Ottawa all my life, by the way. And although I've traveled around the world, I've lived here, and I'm an Ottawa guy, you know. And um, I forgive you. And I, yeah. and I, I say <laughs> that to you because you know it's a very different culture than Toronto. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, I my joke is, you know, Toronto, the business of Toronto is making money, and the business of Ottawa is to spend everybody's money. That's what we do in Ottawa. Mm. We spend your yeah. money. <laughs> it's, that's we're the national capital of the country. Yep. And, and, you know, outside of Ottawa, maybe people don't think very much about, you know, these various organs of government, agencies of government. But, you know, the, the, some of these departments, Finance Department and the Bank of Canada, they're big, big, important, uh, honking big players here, you know. And inside Ottawa, we talk about these things. Now where I'm going with this sort of extended story is I can remember going all the way back to the 70s because I was working in a bank in Ottawa. And the Bank of Canada... Governor, successive governors were very gray, uh, older guys, uh, very boring, 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 and they never, there was never a whiff of political correctness about them, never a whiff of politics about them. They, you, you couldn't find any partisanship in these people. They didn't have a, a partisan bone in their body. Okay, and believe me, they didn't. And they tended to be older people in their 60s and 70s, and they'd been in the bank all their life. They'd been in Ottawa all their life, you know, and they were just gray bureaucrats. And what I noticed with, and by the way, I've met Tiff Malcolm a couple of times in downtown Ottawa, and, and uh, I'm not his friend. I don't, I'm not trying to name drop and tell you I'm a buddy of his. I'm not at all. I've met him professionally at conferences. He's very bright. He's got a CV that's really stellar. Let's give him full credit. 
and he's been in Ottawa his life, by the way. I mean, his professional life. You know, he literally, my joke was, he'd work for four or five years at finance, get bored, and then he'd walk the four blocks, five blocks over to the Bank of Canada and work there for five years, then he'd get bored, then he'd walk back to finance. Because he went back mm. and forth for his 30 years, back and forth between finance, as he went successively up the ladder. So he's got loads of experience. Let's fully acknowledge that, okay? And he's got lo- loads of ex- uh, knowledge. Uh, you know, he's a PhD in economics. Smart guy. However, why I've got uh, concerns, I'm not going to accuse him of being a partisan. I don't think he is. Um, I don't believe he is. I know he's not. But I think that the the bank has become a bit too sensitive to the views of the government today. I mean, when you hear the governor talking about, I'm worried about unemployment, and you can say, well, shouldn't he be? No, that's not the job. of That's the job of the Minister of Finance. The job of the Minister of Finance is to worry about the unemployment. We have ministers in the government. That's fiscal policy. The job of the governor of the bank is to ensure the stability of the currency and, and the interest rate regime. And he's talking about inequality in his speeches. Now, again, for those out there... Climate saying, well, change. All the, he's, he's all in on the green dream, you know. It's not, but that's not his job. Right. You know, yeah. when you're the coach of, of my wonderful Patrick Mahomes and the Kansas City Chiefs, you don't start talking about the European Soccer League. Or the, or the NHL in Canada, because that's a different game, okay? His game, his job is to coach, manage that team, which is the monetary policy of the Bank of Canada, which is interest rates and, and inflation and the exchange rate. That's his baby. That's his backyard. So when he starts talking about green economy and, and inequality and affirmative action and unemployment, I'm saying, Wait, I'm, I'm, I got, what's going on? He sounds like a minister. He sounds like a politician. And he sounds like a minister of finance. So my point is, is I think he has, you know, he first off he was appointed by Mr. Trudeau, so I'm sure he's, you know, simpatico. Trudeau wouldn't appoint somebody who is completely opposed to or, in, uh, you know, had different views from the prime minister. But I, I think that maybe he has sensed that in the, the the air in Ottawa, the culture in Ottawa, that you have to be a very, uh, you know, say things that are positive that uh, make the PMO happy. I mean, we've seen that with Christia Freeland, and I do respect Christia Freeland, but I thought sometimes she's gone a little bit over the top in her, uh, shall we say, over the top praise for the prime minister. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's, I don't want to accuse them of being partisan or not, but I think that maybe they're a bit too sensitive to the views of the prime minister and the prime minister's office. Well, you know, they have seen that big yellow bus uh, back up over a whole bunch of people, so there might be oh, that. Yeah. So if I have this right in what the bank of um, the Royal Bank is saying, inflation's outpacing wage growth, which means what we do make is going to further shrink, which makes affording, you know, things like cost of living or buying a house impossible. And, you know, Trudeau was asked about this on the campaign trail, and he very smugly kind of, <laughs> you'll have to forgive me if I don't focus on monetary issues, we got a problem here. If we have inflation going up and it's steady and it's sticking around for a while, we got a decade of hard times that I really hope someone's got a plan for. Okay, I'm going to make it worse than that. <laughs> Sorry. Okay, <good>. <laughs> Warning. <laughs> okay. A real downer is about to come, okay? <laughs> the, uh, my, my concern is this. When you hear that inflation rates are going up, here's the warning, everybody. When you hear people talking about inflation going up and it's not temporary, it's going to be permanent, I can tell you, Interest rate increases are just around the corner. 
There is a absolute correlation. This isn't theory. This isn't Ian Lee's opinion. This is 300 years of Canadian economic history, British economic history, American economic history, that when the inflation goes up, the central bank's principal tool to deal with it, because they don't want inflation to get out of hand. Mm. They don't want it to take off. And they've got a tool in their arsenal. And that tool is interest rates. That's how you squeeze or, or attack inflation. You put up interest rates to squeeze the inflation out of the system. So if that inflation yeah. becomes elevated and permanent at 35 or 4% or something in that range, I believe, in fact, I think a lot of people believe, we're going to see increased interest rates. Now, some people yeah. can say, hey, that's okay, but there's lots of others who are going to say, that's awful news. Yeah, and I'm up against the clock. I wish I had more time, but certainly any interest rate for some people is going to break the bank because they are stretched that much uh, and leveraged. Ian, uh, thank you very much. I know we will talk again about this because it's not going away. So appreciate your time. Thank you. That is Ian Lee, so therefore you have been warned. Thank you for listening. Of course, you can join us live Monday through Friday starting 6.30 sharp. I'm Alex Pearson. Would love to have you on point here on Global News Radio. 